Hello and welcome to episode 102 of Late Night Linux, recorded on the 9th of November 2020. I'm Joe, and with me are Phelim. Good evening. Graham. Hello. And Will. Hello. So here we are, good news at last. Trump lost, vaccines looking good. With any luck, we might even be able to do Foss Talk Live next year. Maybe we could do it in the uh, car park of a garden centre. (laughs) (laughs) So let's start with a bit of news then. And the thing that everyone seems to be talking about is the Raspberry Pi 400. We did a late night Linux extra episode on it that we'll link to in the show notes. But what do you lot make of this then? This is a Raspberry Pi 4 kind of slightly upgraded inside the official keyboard. I think it's fantastic. You know, the Raspberry Pi Foundation's had a lot of success for quite a long time now, but I think it's so exciting, things like this. The news story kind of spread across the internet and you could see lots of people getting excited all over the world. Um, and I mean that totally uncynically. I mean, there's a whole generation out there that are still quite young that are go out, going to go out and use Linux and open source, and it's largely thanks to the Raspberry Pi. This device it obviously harkens back to the, the form factors that we often go on about in terms of retro computing, um, you know, a Commodore 64 or a BBC machine all in one. Um, I haven't got one, but I, I heard for a long time that there was a sp- suspicious looking hole in the Raspberry Pi keyboard that, you know, didn't fit a normal Raspberry Pi um, because I think the, the hardware has been stretched um, to fit the space, but um, I'm glad it's finally come. I think it will be exciting to see what uh, either education or industrial purposes this will be put forward for. Uh, I can imagine kitting out an entire computer lab in a school for, what is it, a, a 70 bucks per machine or 70 quid machine? Yeah, you could kit out a whole room of computers uh, for a way less money than you'd have to do with PCs. And there is that chance, again, that kids will have them at home and they'll use them at school, use them at home, like we did with the BBCs, and it will kickstart the next computing revolution for the for the youngsters. Old man, I sound like that. <laughs> You do, but that's obviously the goal with this. This is not really aimed at tinkerers and stuff. This is not really aimed at people who are going to brew beer with their pie, like you, Graham. We must talk about that at some point. But this is definitely aimed at education, which was their whole remit in the first place. I think they made one mistake, though, and that was putting the two exactly the same HMI ports on the back, because that is just cannon fodder for tricking your teacher into going oh mine's not working (laughs) (laughs) yeah because if it's anything like the pi 4 you have to have it in uh hmi zero rather than one uh otherwise it doesn't show anything on the screen so yeah that is a bit of a potential problem there but it will drive two 4k screens i mean it's very much like a raspberry pi 4 isn't it but it's actually clocked higher and uh, with better cooling, like, well, better thermals and also a cooling solution inside the keyboard. I was very tempted to get this, but it's only four gigabytes, and I've got the four gig Pi 4, and I could overclock that if I wanted to, and I've got active cooling on it. So I think if they bring out an eight gigabyte version, which seems inevitable, then I'll probably get that one rather than the four. I think it's got a slightly revised SOC as well, I seem to yeah. remember reading. There's, um, they've bumped up the version, so hopefully that's you know fixed some of the heating issues too. Yeah, it sounds like it has, and they've been able to clock it slightly higher as well. So hmm. yeah, maybe we'll see this on the next Pi 4. Maybe there'll be a, a revision of that, possibly. And what I like is that the GPI opens are still exposed on the back. I mean, it's obviously going to need 
some it's going to need some kind of headers to expand them to be able to for people to be able to put the normal kind of hats on but that's so cool or you know buying this kind of home computer that you can plug into a screen and a mouse and then you've got that huge number of projects just built on what is you know a standard um it's really exciting mm. they should send them you know every every kid 12 year old kid should have one um the school should pay for them and they should have them at home <laughs> I mean, my my daughter gets Python homework, and because they can't assume that the the children have got computers at home, she has to kind of work it out, and they're supposed to work it out in their head and trying to guess what would happen. Do do the loop on a piece of paper. Yeah. Oh, presumably you give her access to a Linux machine to do it, though. <laughs> well, she can, but that's the task is that she's supposed to understand what's ha- what the language is doing, which isn't the. I don't think it's the best way of teaching Python. Mm, doesn't seem particularly intuitive or exciting and engaging for the kids. No, but I mean, it's probably just because they can't safely assume that everyone's got access to a computer. Our computer lab had Apple IIe's and we had to do sums on it and we had to do sums we could do in our head to check the computer <laughs> added them up correctly. Well, I remember at school being taken into the, the computer lab and this was my first experience of the internet and it was just written on the whiteboard was uh, HTTP colon slash slash www.altavista.com and that was it. They just let us loose with with the web. And uh, I can't even remember what we did with it. I can guess. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was far too innocent for any of that back then. What about Ubuntu support on this then? Day one support for the Pi 400. The Pi Foundation have been working with Canonical here. I have tried Ubuntu on the Pi 4, and it is a little bit sluggish compared to Raspberry Pi OS. I did speak to Wimpress about that on the Late Night Linux Extra episode that we'll link to. And he assures me that it's all going to be fine. But I just, I don't know, can I am on a pie? Mm, not convinced. I'm kind of in two minds about this. On the one hand, I mean, it is the default computing platform for tinkerers and the default operating system for tinkerers. So the two should go together really, really well. But I, I don't know, there's something just doesn't sit quite comfortably for me there. And... I kind of I'm I'm wedded to Raspbian and, and I don't think I'll I'll change and I I don't know we'll have to wait and see I I, I don't know how successful it will be no doubt enormously successful but it, the the two don't quite fit together naturally in my head. What about the fact that this has got no screen or battery though? It still needs a power supply. It still needs a screen, a TV, whatever to plug into. So it's not exactly a standalone piece of kit is it you talked about kitting out computer labs but unless they've got a screen with hdmi in or some sort of adapters then they're not going to be able to use it straight away are they i imagine that every screen that's been produced in the last 10 years probably more has got either a dvi input or a display port or an hdmi i those screens are out there already. I'm pretty confident of that with absolutely no evidence, but I, I think they would be. Yeah. And for power supply, I mean, it's just a USB power supply, right? Well, yes, it's got a little bit more um, current coming out of it, but those are pretty cheap and easy to come by. And the computer lab probably just bolt them into the wall anyway, so they can't be pinched and job done. But it would have been nice to see some sort of laptop form factor, but you can just see why they didn't want to do that because panel shortages for one... And also shipping batteries is just a nightmare, a logistical nightmare. Whereas if you've just got a keyboard and 
a PCB inside it, essentially, then you've got no problems with regulations of shipping lithium batteries and all that. So I do get it, but I'm still, like I said last time, I'm still hoping that someone will take the compute module or even this new Pi 400 guts and put that into a laptop. That'd be really cool. Yeah, that makes sense, doesn't it? Considering they've engineered this to fit inside the keyboard. I mean, maybe this is this one step on the way to the laptop form factor. Maybe it'd be good if they would do that. The good thing about the BBCB was it's so bloody big you couldn't nick it, whereas these are going to be quite easy to slip into bags. So maybe there's um, maybe there's something to be said for a few wires tethering it down. Yeah, yeah. Maybe they should have put a Kensington lock on it so that <laughs> it could be uh, properly anchored down. Missing a trick, they need to have customizable keycaps, and then every kid gets their own, and they could customize them as much as they want. Maybe, maybe you could have RGB ones like those Stream Deck things where it can just have anything on it. But I think that might be a little bit more than 70 quid. (laughs) 75 then. (laughs) Okay, this episode is sponsored by Datadog, the unified monitoring and analytics platform for comprehensive visibility into cloud, hybrid, and multi-cloud environments. Quickly analyze the performance of your Linux servers in real time with customizable dashboards and troubleshoot Linux issues in seconds with a unified view of your metrics, traces, and logs all in one place. With integrations for over 400 technologies, you can even use Datadog to monitor key Linux source metrics alongside data from the rest of your stack to get full visibility into the health and performance of your entire infrastructure. Start your Datadog trial today by visiting datadog.com slash late night Linux. Start your free trial create one dashboard and you'll get a free Datadog t-shirt. That's datadog.com slash late night Linux. A quick follow-up on something, I think it was back in July, we talked about Linux Mint and them removing the Chromium snap and being all pissed off at Canonical for snapping Chromium. And we said at the time, well, fucking build it yourselves then, or at least I did. And now they have. In the monthly newsletter for October, Clem writes about how they have implemented a build machine, a Ryzen 9 3900 with a lot of RAM and an NVMe drive, and it only takes about an hour to build Chromium, and they've automated it all. And the reason they had to do this was because the package in Debian is usually out of date and seldom gets updated. So fair play to them. It's only taken them, you know, a few months, and it's what, one package of about (laughs) 30,000... So, you know, good start. Chromium is such a hard package to build, and its dependencies are always at the bleeding edge. It's a big responsibility to build Chromium, distribute it to your users, and stay on top of those security patches. That's a huge undertaking. So I think, um, yes, well done for them. That's a lot of work. You seem sceptical as to whether they'll be able to manage it long term, though. Well, I mean, if they have automated it and all of their builds are running completely automatically, then great. A new upstream release comes out and it builds and it pops a dev out and up it goes to their repo and gets downloaded. Great. There are a lot of things to go wrong in that chain. And with browser security, you really have to be fully up to date at like the, the minute that those releases come out. So I don't know. We, we will see. I think it's a lot of work. I don't know how many people they've got on the job. If it's like one robot, then I can see it getting out of control pretty quickly. But good luck to them. You have to really fucking hate snaps to go to these lengths, though, don't you? And what does that tell you? How much of this whole thing came from the top and how much came from the users? 
did it come from feedback of people saying, oh, we don't want snaps and whatever? Or is it Clem just making that technical decision himself, not wanting to use snaps? Because it's not that hard to make the snap of Chromium work on Linux Mint. You have to do a little bit of editing of files and stuff, but, you know, a quick Google and you can do it within a couple of minutes. But it, it just, it says a lot to me that they are willing to go to these lengths and take on this burden. I don't know. I think Clem picked this fight and he has to kind of see it through a little bit by, you know, putting the Chromium builds up because he he made such an issue out of the 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 snap inclusion or swapping out the, the dev for the snap. Alan Pope, I think, honestly explained Canonical's reasoning behind making the snap, um, re, you know, freeing up a load of resources at Canonical and for them to do other open source stuff. Um, and it's a lot easier for us, Canonical, to distribute. And that's the truth. I mean, Clem's got to do what he has to do for Linux Mint. Um, and it's great to have the choice. Well, I still come back to fair play to Linux Mint. I said to them, build it yourselves, and they have. Will they come? That's the question. <laughs> <laughs> I think they have a fair number of users, yeah. And they might even have a few more users now that SJVN has written on The Verge website about how to switch an old Windows laptop to Linux. And he walks people through installing Linux Mint, which I think is a sort of reasonable choice. I mean, you'd think that people would go for Ubuntu, but GNOME is such a culture shock for people coming from Windows, you kind of see his point of picking Linux Mint here. I mean, obviously you would say Neon, Phelan. I would. Correctly. Yeah, and the Plasma desktop is quite similar to Windows, but so is Cinnamon as well. Well, I think they're all roughly enough the same, aren't they? I, I, I can't see anybody struggling with it. Oh no, this window pops up over here. Okay, I'll get over that. No, but the fact that the uh, the panel is on the left-hand side and there's you know, no proper desktop. Well, it's kind of a bit of a hack from Canonical to make that work, but Cinnamon is more like Windows than GNOME. There's no doubt in my mind. I think people should, if they don't have an overall preference, and I, th I still think they should probably go with Ubuntu purely based on the numbers and the QA. If you're not prepared to get involved low level, then I don't know whether that's great advice. I mean, that's me saying that, and I would use KDE, obviously, ahead of all of them. Yeah. But I would honestly think that if you're directing new users to it, get them to use what everybody else is using, at least to start with. Because that is that support there. I mean, that's the main issue is, you know, a thing getting tested enough. Like, I, I probably do things in my system I don't even realize I do to get past sort of idiosyncrasies of things. But, like, you can't have that with a person who hasn't a clue. Obviously, canonical boy and ex-canonical boy would say go for Ubuntu. <laughs> I, I, I would, I would use KDE though. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I think that is the correct choice. Yeah, I think, I think <laughs> using a, like a small distro team, they can do a lot of cool stuff. But just the QA on hardware alone is so much to be done. Like, and if the, if if it is literally taking them that long to compile just Chromium, it shows you the amount of effort that goes into everything else. And I don't think you should be out going on your own with that type of stuff unless you know what you're doing or at least understand it to a certain extent. Yeah, and if you look at all the major distros, they're using GNOME as the default. Yeah, I mean, they can't all be right, but hey. <laughs> yeah, and Plasma is a bit befuddling. Incorrect, but anyway. 
paralysis of choice. There is no paralysis of choice. You don't have to make choice. It's not, the way you say that is every time you click something, five boxes pop up and ask you which one, and you're like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much how it is. You just have no. No, it fucking isn't. You're lying. <laughs> It is shit in lots of ways like that, though. You're, you are absolutely right. I mean, maybe maybe GNOME is the better choice for, for people who are coming from Windows who don't want to be overwhelmed by options. But even having to having this discussion... <laughs> <laughs> so first you need to decide between whatever your desktop environment's going to be. What? <laughs> What's a desktop environment? <laughs> Just pick one. Yeah. I think XFCE is probably a better choice for oh, stop. Windows holders. Just stop. <laughs> You're just trolling now. You don't even believe that, you liar. Five out of ten. <laughs> no desktop wallpaper. I kind of think it's true, though, really. You can make XFCE just, you know, start button, menus, done. If that's what you want, then go use XFCE. Use Ubuntu. Yeah, or use Raspberry Pi OS which is LXDE mostly, and that is very similar to Windows. Windows of yore, perhaps, but nevertheless, it is quite Windows-like. And that is going to be a lot of at least young people's first impression of Linux. Well, with Windows 10 getting more and more uh, obscure, it's just such a clusterfuck of options. Half the settings are in the old-style control panel. Half the settings are in the new settings thing. If you can get on with Windows 10, you can bloody well get on with GNOME or KDE or XFCE or LXDE or whatever it's called. I, I really don't think it's a problem. I think the appeal here is for those diehard Windows XP users, and we all agree Windows XP is the height of <laughs> UI design. Yeah, It's for those guys that would need to come along to use a computer, and fine, if you want to use Cinnamon for that, that makes sense. Okay. This episode is sponsored by Learned. Sign up at automation.link and use the code late night Linux to upgrade and get 50% off a year's subscription to a new DevOps training site called Learned. The site covers the entire DevOps stack, starting with the basics of infrastructure as code and includes almost eight hours of lessons on Terraform, Ansible, Jenkins, and loads of industry tips along the way. If you're interested in learning DevOps, take advantage of this offer by visiting automation.link and upgrade with 50% off with the code late night Linux. That's automation.link and the code late night Linux. On to a bit of admin then. And first of all, thank you everyone for supporting us on PayPal and Patreon. It really is appreciated. If you want to join those people, you can go to latenightlinux.com slash support. And remember for $5 or more on Patreon, you can get an advert free RSS feed. And if you want to get in contact, latenightlinux.com slash contact. And do get in touch with us. Quite a few people have, and we're kind of collating that feedback, and we'll be discussing some of it on future shows. So yeah, do get in touch. Let's Encrypt put up a post last week, standing on our own two feet, where they explain how when they originally started, they piggybacked on another root certificate from Identrust, whereas now that agreement is coming to an end. And so they're going to be using their own root certificate, which is not going to be a problem for most modern operating systems, but it is going to be a problem for old versions of Android. And as we know, there are quite a few phones and tablets and devices out there using ancient versions of Android. So if you're using the default browser on those, you're going to get locked out of a lot of sites that use Let's Encrypt. I think the 
issue of old devices not being able to render some websites is one part of it. But I, I think the underlying story here, for me anyway, is that five years ago, Let's Encrypt launched. And back then, people were kind of thinking about HTTPS on their personal websites. Yeah, well, it sounds quite hard and it's difficult to set up and I can't really be bothered. And anyway, nobody needs it. And I remember back then there was somebody, I can't remember who, was did a great big thing about that they would not put HTTPS on their website because it wasn't necessary. To where we are now, just five years later, where basically everybody has HTTPS on the websites. The browsers almost mandate that you have HTTPS. And you can very easily, with a couple of scripts, have a, a certificate authored by what is going to become or what is now a root certificate, um, trusted by a root certificate, on your web server for free. And it's so popular now that we're considering the issue of older Android devices not being able to render a lot of websites to be a problem. So I think this is actually a catastrophic success. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I agree. I mean, I remember, I mean, we used to double a little bit in this more than five years ago, and it was so horrendously complicated. Even if you didn't want to spend hundreds of dollars on a certificate, um, there were some places that did, well, it was maybe one place that did it for free. There was another couple that did it for 10 or $20. But setting those things up, getting the certificate to your site, keeping it updated, keeping the chain of trust updated, it was so difficult. And you only did it if you really cared about keeping certain data private between you and the client. Um, and the fact that that's changed, you're right. I mean, you've just made me think about all of that and how difficult things used to be, and I've completely forgotten about it. I remember getting a parking ticket from... Uh, it was parked on private land. It was one of those dodgy ones that you don't really have to pay, but I just paid anyway. I remember going to the website, and it didn't have an HTTPS option. It, it didn't have a cert. And I was like, I'm not putting my fucking debit card into this. And that was not an uncommon thing to happen, whereas now you just wouldn't see that. You... Even if people aren't forcing HTTPS, I find that weird now. And, you know, I I remember it wasn't that long ago when it was just totally normal to not have SSL. So, yeah, it does kind of illustrate where we have come. I didn't really think about that. I went to a computer conference in Holland in, uh, I'm going to say 2005, which... It's a long time ago, I know. But at that point, Twitter was relatively new and they didn't have HTTPS. And so somebody on the Wi-Fi network was just sniffing everything and stealing everybody's Twitter passwords. <laughs> and to think it would be that easy to steal someone's Twitter password these days just seems like just beyond reality. And the only downside of this is that um, when I turn on my Amiga and look, launch eyebrows on my Amiga, <laughs> <laughs> there's very few websites I can access. <laughs> Although there is Amy SSL before anybody uh, tells me, but it takes up so much CPU power. <laughs> Could you not like use a, a proxy of a Raspberry Pi in front of the Amiga, maybe? That'd be You're the best right, way to do that. That seems so wrong, doesn't it? But yeah. <laughs> yeah. With my parallel port connected internet, yeah. <laughs> uh, there was a guy today who has discovered that on the Raspberry Pi 4, if you switch the Ethernet port between gigabit and 100 meg, when it's in 100 meg mode, it, em it emits like a 125 megahertz sine wave. <laughs> and when it's in gigabit mode, it doesn't. And so he wrote in a script to turn it between gigabit and 100 megabit and sending Morse code through a wall with it. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That's pretty cool. There is a solution to this 
let's encrypt situation if you're on an old version of Android, and that is use Firefox if that is available, because Firefox has its own root certs. And Chrome is, it looks like, going to be doing the same in not too long. So really, the Android situation isn't that much of an issue, although Chrome will work, but maybe other apps won't. But then I suppose it's pretty ancient versions of Android at this point. So, you know, that's probably the least of your worries, really, in terms of vulnerabilities and whatnot. Okay, this episode is sponsored by DigitalOcean. Go to do.co slash LNL and get $100 credit with 60 days to use it. DigitalOcean offers VMs or droplets, as they call them, with full root access in data centers all over the world with super fast storage and networking. These droplets start from $5 a month and go all the way up to huge amounts of RAM and CPU power so you can deploy exactly what's right for your project. You can pick from multiple distros and start from a basic installation or pick from dozens of one-click apps and be up and running in seconds. You can add more block or object storage if you need it and DigitalOcean has managed databases and Kubernetes, great backups and snapshots and a really useful Teams feature. So go to do.co slash LNL and get started with your $100 credit. That's do.co slash LNL. Let's do KDE Corner then. And you put quite a few links in here, Phelim, at the last minute. Nice one for that. I, I do like to be sly. <laughs> yeah, it really helps me with my preparation. You're welcome. So what's this? <laughs> a new Sysmon on the way. I did have a quick read of it. It's a new, it's like um, GNOME or Mate system monitor by the looks of things. Yeah, I mean, there was always a uh, cases guard there, but uh, they've done a modernization of the whole system. Um, they have case system stats already in Plasma 519 upwards. Um, so this is a new successor to that, and they've simplified a lot of the interface, cleaned it up, and made it more modern. And uh, I think it looks pretty good, um, and it will be out pretty soon. Uh, it's not quite out yet, but uh, it's coming there. KSysGuard is really one of the most underrated apps on uh, Plasma. And um, What I really like is that you can run a daemon on a remote machine and then have those KSysGuard widgets on the local instance of KSysGuard, so you can monitor all, all all of these nice stats for a network of stuff. Oh, what? So you can have that on a headless box then? Yeah, yeah. All oh, right. I didn't know that. That's interesting. Whatever you add, you know, temperature, um, you know, speed, um, RAM, disk access, network access, all the stuff that KSysGuard supports, you can kind of build your own dashboard. And I, I, I was going to ask whether this new system monitor would be able to support, you know, maybe compatible with the KSysGuard daemon, daemon running on a remote machine. But I've actually found the answer because some what's one of the first questions in the comments for that news story? And they, it, not initially, it's not initially going to be supported, but in, in theory, it could be made to work. I didn't realise that KSysGuard could do that at all, actually. All right, well, the next one is Metrics Collection for Dolphin. Thankfully, this is very much opt-in. It is very much opt-in, and it's based on K user feedback, and that'll be... <laughs> shut up. <laughs> shut up. Um, it's going to join Plasma and K along, and they're also using that as well. So I think this is valuable. I think it's an easy way to help out if you're if you're happy to give them it. And the info they're looking for is not exactly top secret information anyway and uh it's an easy way to contribute if you are so happy to do so what's this about improvements with contact then 
so a lot of email clients are announcing newer features and stuff and i just think it's important to point out that there's already a brilliant email calendaring app out there and that is contact and it continues to get better and better each time with Akinadi is starting to use payload compression so you'll drop your your db usage by around 30 percent they hope and Z standard is coming they're using lzma now there's a, a far more reliable imap uh client has been set up using q resync and uh the google api stuff there was a lot of trouble that if you remember at the end of last year where uh google changed their authentication api and that screwed up a whole lot of stuff so all those things have been fixed up and continues to work along so all good fair enough if you want to pretend it's 1998 and use an email client that's local what about this kde android news then more kde applications coming to android yeah and i think especially with the the Pine phone and various other phones that are coming out, uh, I think it's quite good that the KD team has not been left behind in the work they're doing. Um, they've got a new build system set up using all sorts of Java nonsense that is horrible and God knows how it works. Uh, Gradle or something like that, I think. Um, but also they've fixed the F-Droid Nightly's repository that they had. Um, they had trouble where that wasn't updating properly. So that's all ready to go. And uh, there's a couple of new apps that have been added to that, which is Contrast, which is a a tool to help you pick two different colors. I don't understand these graphical things. So um, it's to make, make things look nicer, apparently. Obviously, you can't just have black and white, Joe. <laughs> and uh, NeoChat has been added as well. And they're still working on Krita, so there will be a mobile version of that, hopefully some stage. Sort of makes more sense on tablets, I would have thought, but I have to try that out. And uh, the final one then, Kate is 20 years old. And if you look at this blog post, it hasn't really changed much, the text editor, in the last 20 years, which is sort of good in a way. It's got a dark mode and tabs now. It is. I thought I thought that would be right up your alley, Joe. Yeah, yeah, stability, <laughs> we like that. Yeah, so it's pretty good. I, I'm actually amazed it is 20 years old. I, didn't think, I thought there was something I used before that, but maybe I'm confused. I can't remember that far back. Surely you're using VS Code these days. I am a me-hole. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, we better get out of here then. We'll be back in a couple of weeks when who knows what we'll be talking about. But until then, I've been Joe. I've been Phelan. I've been Graham. And I've been Will. See you later. Mm-hmm.